Welcome to the Less Doing Podcast, where you will learn how to start living more by doing less. Let me help you optimize, automate, and outsource your entire life so you can focus on doing the things you love. Now here's your host, Ari Mizell. Okay, so I'm talking with Tim Larkin here, who is the author of When Violence is the Answer, and also the owner of Machine Gun Las Vegas. And we're going to talk about self-defense and how sometimes violence is the answer. So, so Tim, if you could just give a little bit of your background first, how you, how you got to be a man of violence. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it was uh, it was something like, uh, you know, as a young kid, I was introduced to combat sports early by my grandfather. He was a South Boston, um, you know, Irish guy. And he he really felt that every every little man needed to know how to protect himself. Um, you got to understand this is back in the late 60s. So, um, you know, when I was a really little guy and, um, you know, women weren't really taught a lot of self-protection back then. So it wasn't a misogynist thing. It was just a, you know, cultural thing at the time. Um, so I, I thought basically, you know, learning how to use uh, violence to protect yourself was something that was normal. And um, it, it, it really wasn't. My generation probably was the last generation where it was taught that it was okay for you to protect yourself and go out there, not advocate violence, but, you know, use it. And we pretty much outsourced it, you know, for the last 50 years to the point to where, you know, uh, many children going through um, school today have never even put hands on each other. And a lot of people would think that's good. Um, but the problem is violence is a, uh, it, it's really a, a right that you have to protect yourself. I saw that early on in my life. And then, of course, I got into the martial arts. I was a Navy brat. My dad was a Navy officer, and we moved all over the country and overseas. And everywhere I went, it was usually like the local YMCA or on base. Somebody would be teaching a version of martial arts. And so I did a lot of Korean martial arts. I did a lot of uh, judo and boxing um, growing up because those were, were, those were offered to me. And it was something that I was interested in. Um, my goal was to become a Navy SEAL, and uh, I did that. I was able to uh, I was able to get selected to train to go into training, um, and really that's where my big epiphany happened. Not the way I wanted it to happen, but this is this is the whole thing. Um, at the time when I was training, as a you know, I was, I was fresh out of college. I had been training literally since I was 13 years old at that point to prepare for SEAL training. Because uh, my dad, one of my dad's last commands was in Coronado, California, and we lived in Navy housing directly across from where the SEALs train. It's called Basic Underwater Demolition School. So I couldn't believe there's a job out there. You know, this, this is my 13-year-old self, a job out there where you could jump out of airplanes, you know, hang out at the beach, swim, learn to scuba dive, blow stuff up, shoot really cool weapons, and then wear, wear really cool gear. And that's basically what I thought the SEALs were back then. Um and I thought the obstacle course on base was like my own personal playground. So I knew everything there was to know about SEAL training. I'd made a lot of friends as a young kid uh, with some of the younger SEALs, and they told me how to prepare, what to do, and everything. So I, I was kind of bulletproof going through training. Um, I led my class, my, my uh, boat crew, to win Hell Week. 
everything was going great. I had already, I about two weeks prior to the end of SEAL training, I'd already passed all the hard evolutions. Um, we had a, what was, should have been no big deal dive exercise. And in, during that exercise, without going too much into it, I ended up blowing my eardrums and going into vertigo underwater. And uh, luckily, it was, you know, it was during um, early, early morning where there was really no light. I was able to hit a tow rope uh, for one of the IBSs, one of the boats that was above. And the anchor line that was hanging down, I grabbed onto it and I pulled myself up because um, I was in a, a breatherless uh, unit. It was back then there were dragger units. So there's no bubbles coming up. So you couldn't found me. Um, and I pulled myself up to the surface and they said my head was hitting against the water nonstop. I had no control over my body. They pulled me up and I could tell as soon as the corpsman, we had highly, highly trained medical corpsman and um, dive corpsman. And as soon as this guy looked in my ears, I could tell just from his reaction, I was done. And wh why this is interesting, Ari, and the reason this, this is a, a, a key thing for your people to understand is that was my first introduction to true injury to the human body. And what I mean by true injury is doesn't matter what my will is. It didn't matter, you know, um, how much I had trained, how committed I was, how dedicated I was. I absolutely was able to shake off tons of, you know, non-specific trauma, you know, shots, you know, taking hard shots and cracking, you know, parts of my body and stuff. But I had never had my body betray my brain basically. And that's what happens with true injury. Um, there was nothing I could do. Something as small as my, you know, eardrum absolutely changed my life. And um, I knew I was done. I knew I couldn't pressurize dive anymore. I knew I would not, you know, fulfill my goal of becoming a SEAL officer. And I was already slotted to go to what then was the hottest SEAL team, which was working the narcotics prog uh, pro uh, program down South America. If anybody has watched the show on Netflix, Narcos, um, that's where the SEAL team I was going to was operating, you know, down those areas during that time. And that's that's where it was. That all evaporated literally in seconds after my injury. Um, and then that became the focus of my life. What I what I realized was being bigger, faster and stronger, which I thought was the way to go as a young guy. I quickly realized that, no, there's there's a. Uh, a way of looking at the human body as opportunities from a self-protection standpoint that bypass bigger, faster, and stronger through injury. Now, we all know some of them. You know, I just talked about one, you know, bursting an eardrum. Um, but then we all know things like, you know, going after the throat, the eyes, the, the groin. What was interesting was it was just changing the whole perspective on how to look at violence and um you know, we really looked at the idea of, you know, finding a Rosetta Stone for that. And so what was interesting for me, the way I got to this point was I stayed in the SEAL community as an intelligence officer. I worked directly for the Admiral that controlled all the SEAL teams. I, it was a command I had no business being at. They put me there because I didn't have to take a SEAL, a healthy SEAL out of the uh, arena at that time. We were going through an expansion. It was in the late 80s. Everybody was needed. You know, the SEAL teams, people think they're this huge group. But back then, there was less than, I think, 1,200 active duty SEALs. Um, and we were, trying to, we were trying to ramp up because uh, we were now part of this other big command um, with the Army and everything. And uh, so every able body was needed. So by that fortunate incident, I was put at a command where I had no business being. But they were strategically looking at how to prepare 
uh, special operations, specifically naval special warfare, the, the SEAL teams for the future. These guys back in the 80s predicted what's going on right now. It was really interesting. I was, I was surrounded by the legends of the SEAL teams during that time. And one thing they realized was, you know, at the end of the Cold War, we needed to change our tactics. We needed to be able to go in and put our hands on people again. And that was something that was kind of lost since Vietnam. And I got to be, because of my martial arts background, because they liked me, I had no business being there. I had no combat record. I had no real experience. I was a trained intelligence officer. I, they liked me because they liked the work that I did. And I was a young guy and I was probably like an easy meat puppet for them to like, you know, train with. So they would invite me to be part of this uh, pilot group that was looking at how to start training hand-to-hand combat again. And during that, uh, during that process, we saw some of the top martial artists in the world coming in and, and training us. But everything was off. Like there's a little one thing just wouldn't work with the other. It didn't. It wasn't synergistic with the type of gear and weapons that we carried. There were some things that were just impractical when you tried to use them in the real world. I had a lot of friends, you know, the one thing I was very good at was networking in, in um, the community. And I had friends in DEA and one of the guys in San Diego, one of the San Diego DEA buddies of mine calls me up out of the blue one day and says, Hey, are you guys still doing that punchy kicky stuff? And it's funny now with the UFC and everything, because it's so much more prevalent, but back then, you know, this is prior to the UFC. Um, you know, we're coming out of the cold war the thought process was if you have to use hand-to-hand combat or put your hands on anybody, your mission's screwed. You, you failed. They didn't, you know, the, the people hadn't made the transfer yet to, you know, kind of what you see over in Iraq, Afghanistan, a lot of the house-to-house stuff. Um, so that's why he said punchy kicky. But what he told me was, he says, hey, there's this guy over in Pacific Beach. Now, I'm living in San Diego. My command is in Coronado. My apartment is in Pacific Beach, which is, you know, crazy. And this guy is telling me there's somebody in Pacific Beach, literally blocks away from my apartment that I should go see. And and I'm thinking this guy's crazy. We're flying people in from all over the world. Why would I go see some guy, some, you know, karate guy down the street is how I thought of it. So sure enough, I'm not going to tell anybody about this. I mean, here I am, this junior officer with no experience. And yeah, I'm going to go to the legends of the SEAL team and say, Hey, my DEA buddy called me up and tells me there's this guy we should look at. No way. Am I going to risk my credibility? It's already, I already don't have credibility, so I don't need to go negative on it. But I go there and, and check it out. And nobody, the, the place was closed. And I had really no intention of going back. I looked at it, it was this dingy little studio with carpet, not even mats, less than about 900 square feet of training area, nothing impressive about it. But as I was walking past, you know, the, uh, the entrance, I saw a little trifold uh, mailer that was pinned up against the wall uh, it, that I could read. And I read about it and read about the instructor. And the only thing that got me to go back was this guy had a combat record from Vietnam and he was in a unit, 173rd Charlie Company, that was almost like an experimental jungle unit. Uh, the, the general at the time, Westmoreland, kept these guys out for extended jungle um, fighting. And these guys were just, you know, monsters. They they just were legendary. You know, 173 Charlie just has a huge combat record. And this guy was one of the guys that used to go down in the tunnels um, in there. That alone got me to go back. I said, well, at least this guy understands combat. And so I, I should at least see what he does. So I go back, I think it was the next day or within two days. And I'm just dressed in civilian clothes. And, you know, I don't look military because we're able to have uh, basically modified grooming standards at that time 
which means we can keep our hair a little bit longer and, and look a little more civilian. So I was able to blend in and look kind of like a 20 something, you know, college kid. I walk in and I'm watching a bunch of guys running around like karate geese, but they're not doing anything like I've seen before. It looked like a slow motion prison riot. One of the first things I saw was a guy strike a guy aside the neck, comb grab his hair, a rubber knife comes out of nowhere. He knees him to the solar plexus and then just starts stabbing him in the neck. And that sounds really brutal. I get it. It sounds really brutal. But to me, I was like, oh my God, this looks like violence I've really seen. These guys are training for what I'm really seeing out in the real world. I'd, I'd seen a lot of, you know, violent incidents and stuff like that. And this was the first time I saw training that actually prepared you for that type of experience. And I got to know the instructor. He was an interesting guy. He's a complete functioning, you know, sociopath basically. Um, but, you know, I mean, he was really, you know, we probably call it PTSD or something like that, but he definitely had issues from the war. Um, but nothing, you know, nothing you know, you know, dangerous. He was just a very hardcore guy. And, uh, you know, just was intuitive. He wasn't an educated person, but he really understand stood how the body responded to trauma. And he understood that that was the Rosetta Stone because he wasn't a big man. And he understood that, okay, I can't rely on physical presence and strength. Therefore, what, what do I have to look at? And the one thing that he keyed in on in the training that he had done over the years was the idea that, hey, there are these inherently vulnerable areas of the human body that when you put enough work into them, you're going to get a big reaction. And the cool part about that is it's like the equalizer for all humans. But it changed the mindset. You know, it changed the mindset on how I looked at things. I didn't look at things from a competitive uh, aspect anymore. I looked at things almost like you would look at anything that you would have to say, say you had a bunch of old furniture that you had to break up for the, uh, for the dumps, you know, to, 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 to take away. Um, you look at, you almost look at the human body kind of like opportunities, you know, and, and, and to sit there and say, okay, here's, here's vulnerable, vulnerable areas of the human body. And here's how you can train to, you know, injure those areas. And by injuring those areas, you control the other guy's brain. Um, we've all experienced it. And, you know, if you've touched a hot surface, your hand came flying off the surface long before your brain even knew what was going on. Um, and the reason being is there's a, in your nervous system, basically signals are being sent to the spine um, saying, hey, you, you're, you're getting injured. This is a hot surface. Move your hand. The impulse is so strong that it doesn't even go up to the brain. The, 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 the nervous system realizes, oh, we got to get this out of here right away. So it immediately sends down, you know, a, uh, a, an order to, to react and pull away. During that time when you're reacting, you don't control your brain. Your body's being controlled by, you know, it's, it's basically a, um, a, a reflex reaction that, you know, you have no ability to control. Uh, if you stepped on a sharp object, your foot automatically comes up. You know, you don't make the conscious decision to move your foot. Your body is protecting itself. Um, what we learned was this is, this is the, the body's protection system is a great way. If you turn it upside down to learn how to take out somebody bigger, faster, and stronger than you. So was that practitioner, was that something like Krav Maga or was that something like completely different? Or what was there? No, he was calling it a, a version of Kung Fu at the time, which is really interesting to me. Like a lot of these guys that, they don't know how to 
you know, like when you say Krav and stuff, there's all sorts of versions of Krav. I mean, there's all sorts of infighting there. But Krav basically has uh, has really done a good job at promoting over the years, and they've really become the default term for self-defense. I mean, we used to use self-defense, but now people basically, they look at it, the two terms are either mixed martial arts, MMA, or Krav. And that's, those are really the two default. If you start Googling, you'll, you'll find that people kind of, anything that's not MMA, they'll say, oh, it must be Krav from a self-defense standpoint. Um, but, you know, this guy uh, basically, uh, he, he ran into a Chinese practitioner who was a former triad guy. And they bonded uh, because they both, you know, they both had colorful pasts and they both understood each other. And so this guy understood injury to the human body and he kind of, you know, he, he, he fostered Jerry with it during that time. And then Jerry took it to a whole other level. You know, Jerry's the instructor that I, that I met. Um, what was interesting was I trained with this guy for about three, three, three to six months. They started noticing, meaning these seals that I was working with, you know, we worked out about three times a week on hand to hand stuff. They started noticing I was moving different and training different. And they finally, after a while, they figured out, okay, we got to know what this guy's doing. So one of the master chiefs came up to me and said, what the hell are you doing? Where, where are you learning this? And I said, well, I found this guy and man, they jumped on me right away. What do you mean you found somebody? Well, I've been training this. Uh, get him in here right now. We, we want to know who he is. Cause I told him, Hey, listen, he's at one seventy. As soon as I said one seventy third Charlie company, these guys lit up cause they were all former Vietnam guys. And they said, okay, we want to talk to him. And the only problem was, <laughs> Uh, this guy, Jerry, I told you he's functioning sociopath, not only is a functioning sociopath, he has no respect for anybody that would uh, make a career of the military because, you know, he was drafted and he thought anybody that would stay in the military is just a moron. So, he, and, and in particular, he didn't like the Navy or the SEALs. Um, so here I have this challenge where I got to bring this guy in and literally are, right, it's like, I, I have to bring him into what's called a SCIF, which is a secret compartmentalized, uh, information facility. It's kind of like the Maxwell Smart thing. You go through like four levels of, you know, signing in and going through doors and everything. So we bring, I bring him in and I told him, I go, please, 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 just don't, you know, don't, don't be an asshole, basically is what I said. <laughs> and, and, uh, you know, he, and he kept to it. But what was the most interesting thing about, about that was the question that got us the pilot course, which started the whole training of this had nothing to do with fighting hand to hand or putting hands on people. It had to do with a shipboarding um, hostage rescue that was going on where there was a problem. There was a problem where a bunch of these guys, a bunch of SEALs, then called SEAL Team 6, um, had taken down a tanker that had hostages. And they were going to go through, you'd call it, we'd call it a door, but on a, on a ship it's called a hatch. They were going to go through the hatch and you've all seen like those special operations teams that line up outside the door and then they all go in. So imagine the first guy goes through the door. They blow the door. First guy gets in. The second guy gets tied up by one of the bad guys and none of the other guys can get through the door. So the number one guy is fighting for his life and they're just trying to you know, keep the firefight going. This other guy just is getting, you know, just literally held up at the door and nobody can get in. And it was a, a, a it was a situation where nobody had been able to answer this question for six years. Like how, how could we have done this better before the question was even finished? 
the instructor, Jerry, started lining everybody up. He goes, okay, let's just do it now. Boom, boom, boom. He lines everybody up just like it was. He shows the second guy goes through the door. He tells the guy to do a very, very simple movement. We call it the drop back, which not only cleared the doorway and let everybody came in, but also guaranteed that the guy that, um, that jumped him was killed because uh, the movement that he showed ended up pulling the, the gun center line on the guy as he dropped back. Um, it was extremely simple and it, it answered a question that everybody had been pondering for six years. And this guy just comes in out of nowhere with, you know, it's been 20 years probably uh, since, you know, he's seen war or anything like that. And he answered the question right away. And that they said, okay, great. You understand combat. You understand gear. You understand kit, you know, stuff that we carry. And you understand those limitations and how to train people. And that's how the program originally started in the SEAL teams and then graduated through the whole special operations community through the mid nineties. We trained uh, 230 different instructors that trained thousands of special operators all over the world in uh, this process. It's amazing when you know, it's, it's, well, I like this expression, which is that you can't read the label from inside the jar, you know, and sometimes you just need that like sort of outside perspective to, to see something that might be obvious to one, but not to another. Now, the the uh, the mentality that you take into this is very much uh, a, 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 the end justifies the means, right? Do you agree with that? No, no. You have to have the threshold. You, you have to have a threshold. Where, where people misunderstand that they, it, what they what's really interesting is we want to demonize the tool of violence. So we want to tell ourselves as sane, socialized people that um, either, you know, the tagline that I have for my company is violence is rarely the answer. And everybody loves that part of the quote. They're more uncomfortable with the second part of the quote. But when it is the answer, it's the only answer. And that's that's really where it comes into. There are situations, there are these rare black swan events, but they can absolutely devastate your life if you don't understand how to deal with them, where you are devoid of choice. And that's the key thing. You want to be devoid of choice. Meaning, if you could get out of the area, you would have got out. If you could have talked your way out, you would have talked your way out. If, you know... Um, if there was some way for you to get out of this incident, you would have. But now there's no more talking. There's nothing. You're just facing imminent, grievous bodily harm. And at that point, the only tool that's going to get you out of that situation is a tool of violence. And the big reason I wrote the book and the big reason I'm, I'm trying to make, make this case for violence is we've done ourselves a huge disservice. Well-meaning, people are well-meaning in the fact that, you know, they they, they want to say never, 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 no violence, no violence. The problem is the only people that listen to that are the law-abiding citizens. And so what we've done is we've taken a very powerful tool for our own self-protection, the tool of violence. We've stigmatized it to the, to the point to where the only people that have access to it are the alpha predators. And, you know, it, it's done the exact opposite. It's made us less safe by not understanding how to use the tool. And so my goal is to tell, you know, is basically get people saying, hey, listen, this is a life skill everybody should have. You know, uh, you have to, at some point, you have to, at some level, be your own first responder. And nothing, and, and trust me, I've, I've trained all demographics. I've trained the ultra wealthy. And I've also trained truck drivers and soccer moms and, and people like that. I've trained counter-terrorist experts. I've trained amazing units. A lot of units people don't even know exist. I've trained everybody. 
the the interesting part about this is, you know, violence is something that is, you know, neither good nor bad. It's how it's used. You know, either it'll be a justified use of the tool, which will be deemed to be self-defense, or it'll be um, illegal and it will, you'll be prosecuted for, for using the tool incorrectly. And that's really what it's all about. But the tool itself and studying the tool does not make you a bad person, does not make you criminal. Doesn't, and that's the big lie that's out there is that somehow doing it because violence is what is going to be the tool that gets you the result. You know, you'll call it self-defense at the end, but self-defense is after the fact of violence, just like murder or any prosecution is after what happened was an act of violence and it was it justified or not. And so that's where I have to educate people. And that's really how the book lays everything out for people is just gives them a really good understanding to live a way more peaceful life. The interesting part about this is the most competent people I know with being able to use lethal force. And I'm talking about citizens. I'm talking about law abiding people. I'm not talking about a prison population, but those people tend to be the calmest peace, most peaceful, happy individuals that I know. Um, they understand the real world. They understand that violence is a potentiality, but they've already dealt with that. They've trained themselves correctly. They understand how to think about it correctly. And until they need those skill sets, they can live a much more peaceful life. Where a lot of people, where they've never looked at this, they have no idea that they've got this underlying concern. And it shows up every so often when you see an unfamiliar body type coming in who seems threatening. Um, you get, you know, especially women. Women are really good at picking up on, you know, potentialities for violence. And when you get that, those, uh, that, that inkling and you quickly realize, oh, my gosh, I have nothing in my toolbox to deal with this. It's an incredibly just, you know, disturbing situation because no matter who we are, it, you know, if people look at me and I'm, I have a, a decent physical presence and everything, and I, I look the part and all of that, but I've never had an issue where somebody smaller, faster and slow, uh, fall smaller, weaker and slower has tried to come after me. You know, it's always been, you know, if somebody's going to target you, we have to assume no matter who you are, if they're targeting you, they're probably going to be bigger, faster, and stronger. They're probably going to carry weapons. And there's probably going to be more than one. Those are your baseline assumptions when you're looking at your own self-protection. So how do you design training that handles all of that? And that's, that's really where the, the, the book takes you through all of that, you know, is how to look at it. And, and again, it's, um, it's a fascinating subject. I mean, it's, it's really the one thing that's evolved. I went from somebody who was a highly specialized, um, I guess you'd call it me like a contractor. You know, I, I, we, were, we were doing Blackwater type stuff before Blackwater. And I went from that world to after 9-11, Really, I, I had a, a change to where all of a sudden seventy five percent of my clients were civilian, and that was for two reasons. One, when the war started, of course everybody was deployed, everybody was gone, so nobody could train because everybody was, you know, over there trying to, you know, handle handle what was going on in uh, Afghanistan and Iraq. So there wasn't a lot of opportunities for ongoing training in the military. And then the opposite effect it had on the civilian population where after 9-11, they were far more open to looking at methods of protecting themselves. You know, there's this real need to saying, listen, I can't control world events, but I can at least control my, you know, how I think and look about at this subject and, and how I train. And so there's a huge surge in looking for information like this. 
And then in the years since, since 9-11, that's what's kind of compiled this book. The book was, you know, I had originally over 2,500, you know, pages that I was calling through to create the book. And, um, you know, it's really the book. This really is the book I've been wanting to write for quite some time. And I, I really think that people that take the time to either listen to it on Audible or, or read it, they've all walked away with a much greater understanding of the, of the subject matter. Even if they don't train physically, they can use a lot of the methods and the principles that I put in there. People have used it to improve negotiation strategies. They've used it in their business life as far as you know how they conduct their days. Um, because a lot of the same things methods that work extremely well when your life is on the line work even better when the threshold's lower. Um, and, you know, like I had traders that I traded for the New York Mercantile Exchange. And these guys were amazing. And I get them after the training day, I trade for five straight days with them. I train after the trading day from, from 2.30 to 8.30 um, every night. And these guys kept telling me how much the idea of taking action and the way I, you know, I talk about keeping people in cause state, not, you know, you know, making a decision. They, they realize that nothing, you know, I tell people all the time, nothing happens until you cause an effect. So I can think about aggressively. I can think about, Oh, I, I'll do this. I'll do this to this guy. I'll do that to this guy or whatever. But until I actually do it and I get, an, I get a result, nothing's happened. And a lot of the traders were able to take that. They said, geez, you know, that's, that's really so true about trading. We get so caught up in paralysis by analysis at time that we realize nothing's going to happen until we actually execute the trade. So it's been really interesting going with groups like, uh, you know, groups like that who are able to take my methodologies, which are solely for your personal protection. And then they're able to apply the thinking in other areas. Yeah. I mean, it's incredibly active and, um, Honestly, like Tim, really seriously, you just answered uh, about three or four of the questions I was planning on answering. So, uh, so it's, it's it's great. So, where can people find out more about you and get the book, obviously, and start opening their eyes a little bit to this? Yeah, the best place for them to go is uh, you know to get the book is when violence is the answer dot com, and if they go there. Um, and they order the book, it's the only place where if you, if you order there, you can get it on Amazon, you get Barnes and Noble, you can get it everywhere. I mean, the, the publisher is Little Brown. It's a huge publication. Uh, they're, they're great. But I told you at the beginning, I had over 2,500 pages of information that I got down to a tenth of that in the book. And what I really wanted to do as a thank you to everybody is if you go and you buy the, the book through whenviolenceistheanswer.com, it'll take you to Amazon or wherever. I then will just send me your Amazon re receipt and then there's a 10 module, one for each chapter, one module for each chapter video course that I put together uh, that, you know, normally those, those types of courses that I've been selling, they're, they're usually about $400. But I put this together because I want people to have the complete picture. I do. I wanted people not only if, they, if they're good enough to buy the book, I wanted to give them, you know, additional information that I couldn't fit into there and also multimedia presentations so they can actually see some of the stuff and understand exactly what I'm talking about and, you know, see, you know, what, you know, criminal violence, what it looks like, how you deal with it. So it's a really, you know, an 
it's an awesome opportunity for you to get a full education at an incredibly reasonable price. Yeah, and I and I highly recommend it. Um, I've given your book as gift to uh, several people, and it's it's great. So, uh, Tim, thank you so much for your time. That was awesome. Ari, thanks for having me. Thanks for letting me share the message. Thanks for listening to the Less Doing podcast. At Less Doing, we help entrepreneurs who have opportunity in excess of what their infrastructure can support to set up systems and processes that empower a team to ultimately make themselves more replaceable. That way, they can optimize, automate, and outsource everything in their businesses in order to be more effective. If you want to find out more about Less Doing, the podcast, the blog, the books, and all of the wonderful programs we offer to help you get from where you are to where you know you want to be, go to lessdoing.com slash podcast and check out our OAO blueprint so you can get started today.